Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks, uh, Alice and Helen, very much. Uh, indeed, we continue then our series, uh, Transforming Truth. Truth isn't a static, uh, uh, it might be static in terms of it uh, doesn't change, but it's dynamic in terms of the change that it creates in us. When truth does its work in our lives, we change. Truth changes us from the inside out. And we've thought about creation and the, the way that we're made in God's image. And we've thought about the Trinity, the way that relationship lies at the heart of all that exists. And uh, in a sense, that, that that is the right stepping off point. At the heart of it all, God made a world that is good. And all too often, and maybe even in our Christian uh, circles, because we want to get to the cross, we've been all too quick to say what's bad and what's wrong and what isn't right. But the Bible begins with what is good and what is right, that God created a world and said it was very good, male and female made in his image. But every fall from grace... And sometimes people's fall from grace is very public and very exposing. And sometimes we use those moments to deflect maybe something from ourselves. Every fall from grace is a reminder that we've all fallen from grace. That we live in a world that is no longer as it was meant to be. And instinctively, I think people of all faith traditions and and maybe none except ardent atheists perhaps would recognize that all over the world there are glimpses of its beauty and its potential that is now marred and no longer realized in the way that once it was dreamed. We know by our own observations and experience That the world was made for beauty and for joy and for laughter. And in those moments when we see the beauty and we capture the joy, something in us sings that this is how it was meant to be. And yet to our dismay, it's often obliterated, overwhelmed by tragedy, pain, And regret the huge gulf between what could be, what should be, what was and what now is, what has become. And perhaps here one of the saddest verses in the whole of the scriptures. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. And this isn't theory for us. This is not uh, some kind of intellectual exercise. We live with the deep reality of the fall every day. Sometimes we walk on the heath not far from our home and uh, appreciate the beauty of our surroundings. And yet it always strikes me that in the distance we can see the hospital where there is suffering and brokenness and pain and loss and heartache every day. 
Every difficulty, every struggle, every pain, every unease, every embarrassment, every shame, every regret, a result of the fall. You will know from uh, our previous uh, uh, mornings in this series that I've been drawing on some of the symmetry of what takes place in these early chapters of Genesis. Well, there's more symmetry for us to just to be aware of and to appreciate again this morning. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is how it was made. Creation was made, Genesis chapter 1, and it was good. Genesis chapter 2, relationships were made and it was good. And then Genesis 3 and 4 is what it has become. The creation has become broken and hurting. So we end chapter 3, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This glorious creation is now subject to decay and to death. And then chapter 2 was about the establishing of a beautiful relationship. Chapter 4 is the way that relationship with human beings falls apart with the first murder, uh, Cain murdering Abel, the perfect relationship of chapter 2. Two collapses in chapter 4. A bit more symmetry, chapters 1 and chapters 2 are all what God did. Chapters 3 and chapters 4 is all what man did, what we did. Super important. As we begin to get our bearings around the brokenness that exists in our world, is that it's not God's fault. Now, I understand in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that everything in in one sense is within his will. But yet in another sense, in our humanness, this is not the world that God originally made. And we can be so quick to blame God for so many of the things that are wrong. And the enemy, in, in encouraging us to blame God, cuts us off from the very person that helps us make sense of it all, that will help take us through it all, and will help bring us out of the other side. But we're so quick to blame. We're, we're so quick to, to put on God what perhaps should rest more with us. I was... Uh, Oh, we were uh, surprised even even at theological college with the, the great minds of biblical scholarship and theological understanding uh, were uh, at work, or maybe not. When uh, uh, we lost our first child, uh, we discovered that a baby 20 weeks old had died in the womb, and that for us as a young married couple was just a devastating moment trying to make sense of what had happened in our experience, what was going on in our world. Where was God in the midst of it? And I lost count of the number of times people meaning well would say, God knew best. Did he? Was that God's way? Is that the way God deals with the world that he has made with the people that he loves? Was that really God's will? And the doctrine of the fall here is to begin to correct and to remind us 
that so much will happen in this world that is not God's will, that isn't God's best, that isn't his primary plan and purpose. Will God use all kinds of things in this world? Absolutely. Will God work good in all things? Someone give a cheer. Absolutely he will. But is this God's best? No. No. This world is broken and marred and damaged and hurting. And I want to pause for a moment because I think emotionally this is really important. So easily we find ourselves emotionally blaming God and that cuts us off from him at the very moment we need his help. You with me? See, if it's God's fault, then I'm angry with him and I'm cross with him and I, and he can deal with my anger and my crossness for sure. And sometimes I just need to get it all out. But if at the end of the day I blame God and because I'm blaming God, I distance myself from him and I, I don't want to be near him. If he's that kind of God, then I want to keep further away from him than I thought I did. Then I am cutting myself off, as we will discover, from the very one who will guide me through and bring me healing and wholeness and freedom. The fall reminds us that things are not as they were intended and it's not all God's fault. Now maybe you wouldn't speak it out loud because as good Christian people we guard what we say. But maybe in our spirits we can find ourselves blaming God for something that actually it's time to let go of. This world is broken in multiple ways. Bad things happen in a personal sense for all kinds of random reasons. It's not that we are at fault, but that we, the whole thing, is at fault. And so we need to be aware, thirdly, of our enemy that prowls around and seeks to take advantage as he did in the beginning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, there was some kind of fallenness, some kind of brokenness in the world before Adam and Eve came along. Revelation talks about Satan and a third of the angels being cast out of heaven for their own pride. Uh, Those fallen angels we would call demons that still we would find at work in the world today. He is crafty. And we might look back at Genesis chapter 3 and say, well, if, if I'd been there, that wouldn't have happened. To which the Bible would say, Yes, it would have. Yes, it would have. Yes, it would have. For as Paul would say, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. And some of these verses have polarized the gender wars, haven't they? Male pride uh, points out that the woman did it. It was Eve, after all, that ate the fruit. But that's not exactly what the Scriptures Tell us, what was Adam doing while the serpent was talking to Eve? He was there, the Bible says. He was doing nothing. Did he protect her? No. 
Did he love her in that moment? No. Was he there for her? No. At her moment of challenge, at her moment of crisis and temptation, Adam did nothing. Adam's first sin was not when he himself ate the fruit. Adam's first sin was when he did nothing alongside his wife Eve. We know that Eve, the Eza Kenedno, the strong, powerful rescuer that man needed in woman, we read also in the scriptures that woman also needs the man together. And at this moment, their dysfunction was beginning to find its root. The Bible holds Adam responsible first, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And so Paul would later say, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Adam was passive in those moments. And sometimes many of us men will resonate with this. Every time we men don't make a stand, when we don't protect, when we don't get involved, every time we're physically present but spiritually and emotionally absent, we find ourselves identifying with Adam. That's not to minimise Eve, of course, who did indeed, after all, eat the fruit. Adam and Eve needed each other, and they let each other down. Adam, the sin of omission, Eve, the sin of commission. Adam didn't do what he should have done. And Eve did do what she shouldn't have done. And suddenly these haunting words. Where are you? What, what have you done? Where have you gone? What, what's happened? It wasn't that God didn't know the answer. But that Adam and Eve needed to be awakened to the reality that they now faced. The alienation that they were experiencing in that moment was to cascade down through the centuries and the generations, alienated from God. Having walked with God in the garden, now they were afraid. Now they were hiding. Now they were trying to cover their nakedness. And so the Lord removed them from the garden, a, a, a geographical expression of what was already spiritually and relationally true. They were no longer able to enjoy God's presence in the way they once did. No longer able to be at home with him in the way that they had been. To enjoy the intimacy of his presence. Now they were lost and alone and afraid. And that's our world. That's the story that we can identify with. That's the experience that we can understand. Alienated from God and then secondly alienated from ourselves. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering from themselves. You notice that they they did that even before God had showed up. Suddenly everything had changed and Adam feels naked before Eve when he'd never felt naked before. And Eve feels naked before Adam in a way that she'd never felt naked and exposed before. Shame, nakedness, the inability to be comfortable in your own skin, the struggle with identity, I'm not sure I'm valuable enough, I'm not sure about who I am, I'm not sure what I'm worth, all comes from this moment. For the first time ever, 
they find themselves uncomfortable with themselves. And that's an experience we know well, isn't it? But for them it was a new experience. For them it was something they hadn't anticipated or imagined. They just don't feel right anymore. Or a modern day uh, language around shame, and Brené Brown's been super helpful, hasn't she, with getting this back on the, the agenda. Shame is that, not that just that guilt feeling that I've done something wrong, but shame, that feeling that I am wrong. It's debilitating, it's cruel, it, it robs us of so much joy and peace and happiness, it screws up our relationships. Shame is a killer, and this is where it comes from. Suddenly, they were ashamed. In the chapter before, it said they felt no shame. The turmoil of their identity was being unleashed. And Isaiah would reflect on the struggle. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. That that restlessness that we have, that, that uncertainty about who we are and where we fit in and what we're about all comes from here. Thirdly, alienation from God, alienation from ourselves and alienation from others. Notice that the nakedness that Adam felt was not simply before God, as I said some moments ago, but for, before each other. And as a consequence of that, this sociological, this relational alienation begins to take place. Adam blames God, first of all. His relationship with God is messed up. Then he blames Eve. She gave me the fruit. I don't know any men that have ever spoken like that, but Adam had a go. She did it. Look what she did. Having blamed God, this woman that you gave me. And so... The, the relationships with God, with each other, began to crumble. What a change from the delight of a chapter or so ago. So Adam and Eve's equal and reciprocal relationship becomes a struggle, becomes a power game, becomes a one-upmanship. And men and women have struggled that way ever since. Part of the redeeming purpose of God is to restore that which was broken. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's not how it was intended to be. That's now how it has become. As soon as they fell out with God, they fell out with each other. Humanity against God becomes humanity against its fellows. We become strangers and enemies, a threat to one another instead of a Friend, And there are countless ways that that works its way out in our world today of prejudice and racism and greed and social divides and economic divides, exploitation of others, lack of justice and righteousness. Even loving our neighbor, even in the seeking the good of another person, is so often filled with self-interest. Are you with me? If I do that for them, I generally want to bless them, but there's a little bit wondering what's going to come back to me if I bless them. Will they reciprocate? Will they bless me back? And so even our purest, best motives become tarnished and soiled. So we're alienated from God, from ourselves, from others, and then, of course, we're alienated from creation itself. Instead of stewarding the world, we've exploited it, and that's a whole 
subject for a, uh, another time and even creation itself the bible says such was a the catastrophic moment such were the immense implications that don't just affect us as human beings but affects the whole cosmos which has fallen so even the the world the earth itself groans longing for the day when it will be liberated and then lastly alienation from life itself you will die. It was never part of the plan. You will die. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Now every tick of the clock moves us inescapably to our clothes. We become all too aware that our own plans, our own purposes, our own dreams will reach a full stop. And the anxiety that that has produced in humankind is astronomical in its effect and implications. Death confronts us as nothing else. It confronts our insignificance, our weakness. It expresses the folly of our pretension to greatness. It's why it hurts so much. It's why death has an awful stink about it, as the New Testament writes. It was never meant to be this way. And so we we see this kind of, just in Genesis chapter 3, all those kind of main headings are all pulled out of those verses that, that Helen read to us some moments ago. So so we get this picture of this this massive dysfunction that has been created in the world today. When things don't work, this is why. When we wonder why it's a struggle, this is why. When we think, think, think things don't make sense, this is why. So what? Shall we call, curl up into a cave? Shall we bury our heads in the duvet? Shall we fail to get up in the morning? No. Two things. One thing that's important and one thing that's extremely important. The first thing that's important, our response, number one, we fight against it. The world is not how God intended it to be. Therefore, we fight with all our being for all that God originally intended. We fight for beauty and we fight for joy. And we fight for relationships. And we fight for wholeness. And we fight for truth. And we fight for righteousness. And we fight for justice. Because that's the way God made it. If the way things are, is the way God intended it, then there's no hope that things will ever be different. But... If the way things are, are an affront to God, if it angers him, sickens him, saddens him, if he himself will not rest until this world is restored, then when we fight against evil and injustice, when we reach out to the hurting and the oppressed, when we meet the needs of those who are suffering, hurting and dying, the whole of heaven is on our side. How cool is that? If you want to do something this week, when the whole of heaven will be with you, this is it. Fight. 
for the world that God made. It was never meant to be like this. Remember how outraged and distressed Jesus was at the graveside of Lazarus. I've wondered about this verse. It's natural, I think, for us to think that Jesus' sense of outrage and sadness and weeping was because Lazarus had died, because he'd lost his friend. But Jesus, of all people, knew what was about to happen next. You know how the story ends. Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. I often wonder what that would have been like, all wrapped up in his grave clothes. I mean, the, the, you know, the cartoonists would have had all sorts of fun in the Daily Mail on that one. Jesus knew what was going to happen. His anger, his, 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 his pain and his gut, as the, as the words describe, was not so much that he lost Lazarus, because he was going to get Lazarus back any moment, but it was the, 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 the sense of what sin and sickness and death had done to the world. What it was doing to the people, it says, as he, as he saw them weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled by the pain and suffering of the world. And so when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The doctrine of the four gives us a different vision to live by, doesn't it? To work, to pray, to long for, to look for the way it was intended and not to settle for the way that is. We must challenge confront and seek to change the way things are. Uh, And it's just a fantastic testimony to the church, to Christian faith, that all around the world there are Christians changing the world one little step at a time. All around the world. If you took the Christians out of Ipswich, so much of, of the change and the, the kind of salt, the, the holding of society, the love and the compare and compassion, the building of community, take the church out of Ipswich, many communities would fall. Because we're by far the largest voluntary organization in, in the country. And an amazing stories around the world of what Christians are doing. And we're glad to join their number. We must be subversive and the whole of heaven is on our side as we seek to turn things the right way up now i said that was an important response now now to the to the much more important response in a way that's not to say that what we've just said doesn't matter or isn't important it's absolutely what we've been called to as christian people but in and of itself If that's all we've been called to, then it ends with a sense of frustration because as Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And we wait for a day, we think, if only I get through this week, then next week will be better. Anyone ever thought like that? Was next week any better? Or even if it was, it was just for a moment. Because in this world is the strife and it is the struggle, is the brokenness. Which is why our second response is this. To recognize we need to be freed from it. We need rescuing from the world and all that it has become. We're trapped. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins. Anyone here fall into that category? 
is a slave to sin. I don't like to think of myself as a slave. I choose to do things, don't I? Don't you? Mm, I'm a slave. Somehow I'm I'm trapped. I'm, I'm in chains even if I can't see them. I'm not free even if I think I am. Why? Because I'm under a curse. All who rely on observing the law, i.e. living perfectly, if you've been relying on that, all the best. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So I'm, I'm enslaved. I'm in chains even if I don't recognize them, we don't see them. There's a curse on me because I've stepped out of God's blessing, out of God's purpose. And so Paul will sum it up in his letter to the Ephesians. It's just like you're in darkness. It's just like you're in darkness. And it's just like we're all dying. And death came through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin. I'm trapped. I'm enslaved. I'm under a curse. I'm under the rule of darkness. And not to state the obvious, I'm dying. That's what it means to live on the earth. That, that is the reality that we call our temporary home. And whatever we've tried through centuries of effort, we are as trapped as ever we are. Whatever human beings have temporarily put their hope in, modernism said, well, our intellect and our scientific breakthroughs, that will help us to a new utopia. I haven't seen that yet, have you? And whatever we've believed in over the, the, oh, we're longing for a new empire. When we get rid of the Romans and someone else takes charge, it will be a new, beautiful world. And of course, it never is. I need to be rescued. I I need to be free. I I need someone to liberate me from the bondage, as Paul puts it, of sin and death. And that's what Jesus has done. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's worth waiting for, wasn't it? You've waited 20 odd minutes, 20 long minutes for that. But it was worth it. Thank you for responding. For he has rescued us from the dominion, the rule, the trappings, the slavery, the curse, the the bondage, the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. As Paul put it, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. So that we might say that now in Christ, we, (coughs) excuse me, we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, which is indeed freedom itself. And so as the Bible draws to an end, as the whole sweep of the story reaches its conclusion, so the the challenge increases as to how we respond to what God has done. Repent then, the early preachers would say again and again. Turn around, change the way that you are thinking and turn to God so that your sins that that keep you in bondage, that keep you in darkness, that keep you enslaved may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. 
And that's his grace right there. Not that we wait one day for the ultimate refreshing, for the ultimate banquet, for the ultimate party. But here and now we might know times of refreshing. Here and now we might celebrate. Here and now we might feast and party together knowing that our liberation is already at hand. For the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of of the devil. We have acted in history. The first act was God's and the last act will be God. Just like the first was God's, his final will and purpose will prevail and we long for that day. And so it sums, gets all summed up. No longer will there be any curse. No longer. Do you want to know what heaven's like? It's like the good world that God made in the beginning. It's the, don't get the idea that you're floating around in kind of a see-through, kind of transparent, kind of body dress type thing. Imagine the world that God made in all its glory and all its beauty without anything that's messed it up. That's a glimpse, just a glimpse of the recreation, of the new creation, of everything that God calls us into. There will be no more night, no longer any curse. Let's be quiet for a moment and Joel will lead us. As we reflect on what Simon said, This is a broken world, Lord. Help us not to just go with the flow of this world, but to stand firm, knowing that we are standing for something greater, Lord. God, help us to understand who's backing us, Lord. Help us to understand when we fight, we've got the heavenly realms on our side, Lord. Help us to stand firm in the crowd, Lord, stand out in the crowd, because we're representing your love. And we're representing something greater than you. Then we're representing something greater than this earth, Lord. God, rescue us. Rescue us from our bonds. Lord, we, as humans, we feel tied down in our chains, Lord. We feel tied down to our sin, Lord. Help us to know that you've broken chains. You've broken all that, Lord. That through your love and through your mercy, we can stand firm and say that we are forgiven. God, you forgave us so that we can stand firm and we can tell people about you, God. Lord, in this next song, help us to give our sins to you, Lord. And help you to break these chains. Help you, Lord, as we give you our sin, God. Help you to change our sin to proclaim your mercy, God. As we change, or as we seek you, God, help our change in our being to shine your love to people who don't know you, Lord. Help us to represent you as we help us to represent you as we give up, give you our sins, God, and you free us from our chains. In this next song, let's just stand and let's really just give our let's give our love to God. Let's give our sins to God. Lord, you break every chain. <laughs>